After a detour through the Gospel of John last week, we're back in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. Jesus has just been baptized, and now Luke is emphasizing that he is filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 3, the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. Here in chapter 4, verse 1, it says that he was full of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 14, it says that he was in the power of the Spirit. And just prior to our passage today, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for a time of testing. He spends 40 days in the wilderness fasting and being tempted by the devil. And then verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus has just experienced a time of testing in the wilderness, and now he is entering into the land. His movements are tracing the steps of ancient Israel. So he passes through the waters, into the wilderness, and then into the land. Red Sea, desert, Canaan. And so if we recall the history of Israel, in particular the book of Joshua, we should expect some sort of conquest here. We should expect to see Jesus encountering opposition, facing his enemies. Before God's people can enjoy peace and prosperity, Jesus is going to have to drive out the enemy. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now pause here for a brief moment. Um, we are told that Jesus' custom was to attend the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Or, in other words, Jesus was a weekly churchgoer. He was much more than that, of course, but he was not less than that. And so it's not actually possible to say, I, you know, I don't really care for the church, I just want to follow Jesus. Because if you, if you follow Jesus, if you really follow Jesus, you're going to end up in the church If you really follow Jesus, his custom of weekly worship is going to become your custom. Verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That sounds really good. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And so Jesus reads a prophecy in the synagogue about what the Messiah is going to bring. Good news to the poor, liberty to the captives and the oppressed, sight to the blind, the year of the Lord's favor. And then he claims to be the fulfillment of that prophecy. In no uncertain terms, Jesus claims to be the Messiah. 
And at first, the people are all on board. All spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words. I I think we tend to miss that. Initially, the people were marveling at Jesus. Remember where we are in Luke's narrative. John has just baptized Jesus. and, And right there in front of a large crowd of people, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form and the Father spoke audibly from heaven. It was a public event. People tend not to forget something like that. In addition, we're told in verse 14 that a report had been circulated throughout the region concerning Jesus. He was developing a good reputation. He was getting some good press. And verse 15 says that he was being glorified by all. And so it it seems as though the people in the synagogue were not surprised or upset when he claimed to be the Messiah. They were marveling at him. They were glorifying him. Okay, so what did Jesus do to lose their support? Because by the time we come to verses 28 and 29, the people in the synagogue are filled with wrath and trying to throw Jesus off a cliff. So what happened? Why did they turn on him so quickly? What made them want to kill the man who moments ago was their only hope? The fulfillment of all their hopes. Let's read beginning in verse 23. Jesus said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. So just as things are getting good for Jesus, he deliberately reigns on the parade. He's influential. His approval rating is through the roof. He has their full support and he throws it all away. Now, obviously, Jesus had a a very important message to share. This is a a world-changing message that he has to share. And, And for this message to truly go global, Jesus was going to need lots of people and lots of resources, right? So, So what was so important to communicate that Jesus was willing to sacrifice all that support? And what did the people in the synagogue find so offensive? On the surface, Jesus is simply stating his hesitance to perform miracles in his hometown. But as you might expect, it goes much deeper than that. So he refers to two stories in order to explain himself. The first story is from 1 Kings 17. There was a great famine in the region, and many Israelites were hungry. But the prophet Elijah was sent by God not to the hungry Israelites, but to a widow in Sidon. He feeds her family and even raises her son from the dead. 
The second story is from 2 Kings 5. Despite all the lepers in Israel, the prophet Elisha heals a leper in Syria. And so Elijah worked miracles in Sidon. Elisha works miracles in Syria. Put simply, the scandal here was that Sidon and Syria were not Israel. These were Gentile nations. These were non-Jewish people. The Israelites in the synagogue were marveling at Jesus, glorifying Jesus, ready and willing to give their full support to Jesus. This is the Messiah. He's going to save us. He will defeat our enemies and return the nation of Israel to our rightful place of prominence in the world. But instead, Jesus expresses his intention to love and redeem not just Israel, but any person or nation willing to acknowledge his authority, his lordship. Jesus has come to love Israel's enemies too. He has come to minister to the godless pagan nations too. Jesus, we've, we've been waiting for you. We've been trusting the promise. We've been suffering at the hands of nations who will not acknowledge the one true God. And so it's obvious what you need to do. We've been waiting on a blessing from God, and that blessing is not for these godless nations who have been a curse to us. If you're the Messiah, if you're really the Messiah, you're talking about saving the wrong people. Now, this was obviously the wrong way to respond. I I hope that's obvious. Um, But when you stop to think about it from the perspective of a first century Jew, you, you can start to understand their violent reaction. They had been waiting for centuries for this promised Messiah to come defeat their enemies and restore them to their land. But Jesus is claiming to be a Messiah not only for them, but for their enemies as well. And so, no, it's not, it's not hard to understand the reaction. And the truth is, I think, I think we still do this. Maybe we're not throwing people off cliffs, but we still do this. Our society is incredibly polarized right now. And that makes it easy to consider certain people or certain groups of people as beyond the reach of God's redemption. But Jesus came for everyone. He came for every tribe, nation, and tongue, every race and ethnicity. He came for the poor and the rich. He came for the Baptists and the Catholics. He came for the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. He came for the progressives and the populists. He came for lawmakers and criminals and criminal lawmakers. He came for every person who marched through the streets in 2020. He came for every person who marched on the Capitol in 2021. Deal with it. We have to deal with that. To the extent that we're uncomfortable with the full scope of Jesus's redemption, we're the ones who have work to do. We need bigger hearts. And the world needs us to have bigger hearts. So take a moment, if you would, um, 
and picture in your mind the object of your scorn. Picture in your mind the person or the group of people upon whom you place your contempt and derision. Perhaps it's a person who has wounded you deeply. Perhaps it's a boss or a coworker or a member of your family. Perhaps it's a politician or perhaps it's the government as a whole. Jesus came for that person. He came for that group of people. And not only that, but Jesus came for the sinful person I see when I look in the mirror. And he came for the person in your mirror as well. He's incredibly gracious. And so Christians don't settle for, for, for loving only the people we like or are like or look like or think like. That's too easy. If Jesus had done that, then the world would be without hope. But as it is, when we understand the full scope of Jesus' mission, it humanizes the world. The gospel turns even our worst enemies into broken bearers of the Imago Dei. And that is why the gospel is such a, such a powerful social balm. Because it humanizes every human. Every time we encounter a human being, we encounter a person within the scope of the messianic mission. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Remember, this was Jesus' hometown synagogue. These people knew him. They watched him grow up. They knew his parents and siblings. And I'm willing to bet that over the years, he was pretty nice to them. But in spite of all this, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. These people wanted a particular type of Messiah. And they realized that Jesus wasn't going to be what they wanted. He wasn't going to play by their rules. He had come to offer life and deliverance and forgiveness and salvation, not just to Israel, but to all the nations of the world. You see, it's not enough for God, for the creator, to have Israel, the nation of Israel, and for Satan to have Rome and Syria and Egypt and everywhere else. It's not enough. The Messiah is coming to lay claim to everything, the entire world. Earlier, I said that Jesus' movements um, from the, the Jordan River to the wilderness, back into the land, his movements are tracing the, the, the steps of ancient Israel, and that we should be expecting some sort of conquest as Jesus faces his enemies. And this is that conquest. It's a real conquest. Jesus really is claiming authority over the entire world. But this is not a violent conquest like we see in the book of Joshua. This is a conquest of love. Jesus is overthrowing the spiritual forces of darkness and rebuking the prideful and the powerful, but he is simultaneously extending 
grace, love, and peace to all who acknowledge his lordship, to all who give him their allegiance. Jesus has been given universal authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. He's the king of kings, and he's calling upon the church to bring every nation of the world into submission to his lordship. He calls the church to a universal conquest of love and righteousness and justice and peace. And it looks like good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed, the year of the Lord's favor. Those are the words chosen by the king we all need. Those are words describing the world we all want. And so let's give to him our our full allegiance and then commend his goodness to the nations, beginning with our neighbor next door. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you meet our needs. You have met our need chiefly in your son. Jesus, you are the Messiah. We praise you for having a bigger heart than ours. Because in our, in our pettiness, in our unforgiveness, we divide and tear down what you came to build. And so grow our hearts. Holy Spirit, give us hearts to comprehend and to appreciate the full scope of Jesus' mission. And make us faithful witnesses, faithful emissaries of this universal conquest marked by love and righteousness and justice and peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.